<clears throat> Podcast Network Asia. Right? I can only imagine what it feels like for a young Filipino kid watching commercials about, well, my skin doesn't look like that. I need to buy this cream so I, I look like that. That's where, like, what does that do to a young kid, right? And then how will that young kid grow up to be an adult who thinks the same way? And then they're going to pass that on to their children, right? Like, you're not, you're not good enough unless you look this way. That's what I want to change. That's what I want to address. Today on Partially Pinoy, we speak with Tony Dela Cruz. Tony spent 18 years as a professional basketball player in Manila and is now a basketball coach for the Alaska Aces and a budding life coach. We pack so much into our time together, including the miracle that led to his parents' meeting, his work ethic, and how his mixed race identity prepared him for the challenges life brings. Credit also to his driver, Tang Carino, whom he quotes in this episode. Footballer James Young Husband joined our conversation. A note about the audio. This interview came together hours before James and Tony were to leave Los Angeles, and we conducted the interview in a park. You'll hear some birds chirping and kids playing in the background. This is Partially Pinoy, and we are powered by Podcast Network Asia and Podmetrics. I will ask you a question that I ask all of my guests about your childhood and upbringing. And the first one is always, how did your parents meet? My story, my parents' story is very unique because my dad tells it and my mom says it's true. My dad is from the Philippines, born and raised there in Manila. And then when his papers came in to travel to the United States, 1968, he took it and he had a plan to go visit uh, his relatives in New York. So he was going to get on an airplane. He said he took his flight from Manila to Japan and then it was going to be Japan to New York. They had flights back then that, that, that reached that far. And he said somewhere over the North Pacific, the engine had some trouble and they had to do an emergency landing in Seattle. So they land in Seattle and they tell him it's going to be like a 12 hour layover you know they have to get a new plane and he called some friends who said why don't you come down to san francisco and we'll hang out and so he said okay so he changed his flight got a, a faster flight to san francisco hung out in san francisco and then they're like why don't we drive to la and look for jobs and he my dad you know he's in the moment and he's like sure and he drives to la and then at that time my mom had just come from ohio with her best friend to look for a job they're this like would have been in the 70s this is late 60s, early 70s. Okay. And yes, early 70s. I just talked to my mom about this. <laughs> and uh, she ended up coming to Los Angeles working at some firm. And my dad's an accountant. My dad ended up finding a job at this firm, met my mom. And they went on a couple of dates. And my dad and mom said they knew they were in love. And so I tell this joke amongst our family that like, if there's ever a back to future back to the future episode about <laughs> us, I'd have to go make sure that that plane had engine trouble because he tells us, he goes, if I would have went to New York, I probably maybe eventually would have made my way to LA, but not in that way. So I, I like to believe that me and my sisters being born is very, very like special in that way. And yeah, I mean, all, a lot of things had to happen for them to meet in LA. You know, my mom's from Columbus, Ohio. My dad's from Manila and then they meet in LA randomly. So I think it's just, uh, it's a cool romantic story. And my dad and mom swear it's true. Wow. 
you know, at that time in America, 60s, 70s, I feel like, you know, it required an open-mindedness to a come to America in general and, and to apply for a job in America. So tell me a bit of the desire from your dad, first of all, to do that. And then what it was about your mom, you know, and what, what it was about your dad that made them feel like they could actually make a life together. Um, my dad would tell me before when he, when he was still alive that his father, my Lolo, would always tell him, try to get to the United States. There's lots of opportunity there, you know, and my, my Lolo was a, an educated man. He was an engineer and he died young. And so my dad was forced to be sort of the breadwinner. How old was he? My dad was 13 when my, my Lolo passed away. And so my Tita, his older sister would tell, tell me stories that my dad would immediately go out to work. He'd sell newspapers, sell balot, all that stuff. And then he would still put himself through school. He was very, very intelligent. And he put himself through FEU, Far Eastern University. My mom and went there. Nice. And he got, he was an accountant and he knew he wanted to go to the United States. He just said that that was his dream. There's opportunity there. Him and his best friend had their paperwork come in for Canada. And he's like, no, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. And his friend took it. And six months later, his papers came through for the United States. So, and then that whole incident happened with my mom. You know, she grew up in Columbus, Ohio. And the thing I love about my mom, amongst other things, is she's very, very open-minded. And she's always level-headed. And every time we have conversations about issues, political, race, um, religion, she's so pragmatic in, in her approach. And her whole thing is about understanding and openness and inclusion. And I asked her, was there ever an issue when you met my dad and she said no i saw him as this handsome guy and he was very charming and she i go what did you care that he was not white and she goes that didn't even cross my mind like i wasn't looking oh this guy's not white how my how's my family gonna accept it she said i'm making this choice because i fell in love with this this person and they even got married in ohio i see pictures and you know it's like my, my grandparents on her side and here's this like Filipino man and, and everyone else in the picture is white, you know? So I can only imagine at that time how it must have not only felt, but looked for them. And, you know, I'm sure the Philippines in Ohio was a far off place. And I've met a couple of Filipinos from Ohio who were like flip out. They're like, oh, you know, Ohio. Like, <laughs> and I'm like, you're a Filipino in Ohio. And they're like, yeah, there's not too many of us. So I think, I think that's the thing. Like both my parents are, are, they're very open-minded, you know, they raised me and my sisters, we'd see issues like, you know, when we're growing up on, on race and I always remember that their stories were always about, that's not right. We need to fix that or that needs to be this way. It needs to be that way. And, and I'm very grateful that I was raised in a, in a family where they taught me about listening, both sides, you know, I've never, ever heard my parents speak negatively about anybody. It was always about even people who who aren't politically like correct, they, they, they're still, you have to understand them, where they're coming from. So I, I'm grateful for that education with them. How did your family in Ohio react to a Filipino man coming into their family? Were they all as enlightened? I never, I never have heard any kind of issue. My older sister would tell me every now and then that it might have not been accepted in, in certain circles. But I remember when I was a kid going to Ohio, like everyone loved us, everyone loved my dad and I never felt there was an issue yeah. and I always felt like he was welcome. We were welcome. Like to this day, like 
my cousins still call us and, you know, I never feel like, oh, I don't want to talk to them because they don't like us. It's that I don't think it's an issue. That's amazing. And it's pretty, it's pretty awesome. And then how about your dad's side? How do they come to accept well, to or be not honest accept with you, your mom? In Philippine culture, you know, white, everyone loves white. And I'm just saying it because it's the truth. You see these commercials for lightning, you know, cream and all this and all that. And my experience there is like, wow, you have such great skin. And I'm just saying through my experience, I'm not saying it's right, but I recognize that it is different for other uh, Filipinos who are mixed with other ethnicities. And I'm not saying I'm, I'm better off, but regardless, my family in the Philippines and, and my Filipino relatives love me and my sisters, love my mom. And actually, they're very inclusive of everybody. Like, I've had family members who have cousins that are in a relationship with African-American, Mexican-American, and very inclusive. So yeah. I, I can see that there's just about this acceptance. Yeah. Everything is about acceptance. And then how, yeah, tell me about the cultural meshing. Um, it's funny you, you asked that because I, I was just in a class discussion about inter, intermarriage. And, you know, coming from an Asian family and an American family or a white uh, European family. Asians from our very, is it feel piety, you know, like family based, you know, family first. And that's what it is with, with my dad. It was like, what yours is mine. It was mine is yours. You know, like if I got a job, I shared it with everybody, you know, and my mom had to tell him like, no, he earned that money. That's his money. She earned that money. And my dad was like, no, well, we put them through school. We raised them, you know, like they have a job now, <laughs> you know, if we're all going to Vegas, we're all going to Vegas, you know? <laughs> so like I had to learn that my mom was coming from an, uh, like, you know, when we're 18, she's like, are you thinking about moving out? What's going on? Like, you know, we're in an Asian American family. You're like, stay till you're 50. Like, <laughs> and so you could see that conflict there. And my dad would always talk about, no, this is, this is their home as well, but they have to help contribute. And then my mom would always try to teach us lessons like, <clears throat> you're going to stay here and you're this age, you're going to have to pay some rent, yeah. you know? And then it's like, what are you talking about? She goes, because if, if I don't charge you rent, you're going to stay here forever. Yeah. And I'm trying to teach you, I guess, these lessons. And so that that's where it was different in the, in the culture I could see. But, you know, they made it work and I think we're better for it. And my mom, you know, my dad would butt heads a couple of times about certain things, but it, they made it happen. So you are how many in your family? Siblings? There's wise? three of us. So I have an older sister okay. and I have a younger sister. Okay. And so you were born, I read, in West Covina. Is that yes. accurate? But you were raised in Carson. In Carson, yes. Okay. And it was just kind of, would it be just kind of a normal Southern California upbringing, you would no. say? So Carson at the time, and I think to this day, is one of the most diverse cities in terms of amount of of different ethnicities so like i think when i was there growing up it was like 25 percent white caucasian 25 percent african-american 25 percent hispanic and then 25 percent asian pacific islander including samoans filipinos the the white caucasian uh population in carson i think were elderly there's a there's some retirement homes there so when i was going to high school there was no white kids and like i look white you know like and so real quick, I would always, you know, my name in high school was white boy, you know, like it's like, it was just hey white boy, what's up. And it's so navigating through that and kind of being bullied, 
because I was different from everyone. And imagine I'm getting bullied because I'm white. It's like, I hear all these stories about I was the, the black kid. I was the, the Chinese kid. I was this, but I was getting bullied because I was white. I, I didn't, it's not that I didn't mind it. It was just, that's how it was. And I had to learn to be funny really quick and witty because I, I wasn't going to fight anybody. And I just learned how to adapt quickly to the situation, to whoever I was talking to. And I loved my experience because it taught me that there was, there was so many different things outside of what you see in mainstream America. Carson is just such a diverse place and it was awesome growing up there. I don't know. I love that experience. And then coming to UC Irvine, it, it was a culture shock because all of a sudden there's all these white people. And it's like, wow, <laughs> this looks like a movie. This is what I didn't see this, you know? Wow. Yeah. It was like, it was such like I stepped out of the bubble and stepped into a new bubble. And then when I went to go play basketball in the Philippines and got to travel through, through that experience, I met all different kinds of cultures, religions, political ideas, you know, so I've really, really am grateful for the experience I had in terms of the foundation I received in Carson. And the exposure. And the exposure and the diversity. What was the culture at Carson High for basketball and where did you fall in that? Was was it a dominating team and you're like at the top of the heap or was it kind of middle of the road team and you were at the top of the heap or was it a losing uh, team and you were like... We were a very, very hardworking team. It was, it was interesting because at Carson High, like I was one of only two white kids on the team. And then all my teammates, I mean, it was hard because we played schools like Crenshaw, Dorsey, Washington, like South LA, Banning, Narbonne. And so every time we'd go into these, these gyms, I'm, again, I'll get this white boy, white boy, that, you know? And so it's like... I had to show that like I could play, but at the same time, I wasn't dominant. I wasn't the guy that's going to like, oh, I'm scoring 40 in high school. I was this hardworking kid that, that just wanted to make it to the next level. And my coach was so great at getting us to work together. And my journey through basketball has always been, I have to prove myself. And I feel like it, it's parallel to being half Filipino and half white. You always have to prove how Filipino you are. I never had to prove how white I was because no one cared about that, right? Because now on the outside, I looked white. So I was like, oh, he's a white boy. And the way I look at it was everyone, I think, in race in America, everyone is always about the experience. Because I can't speak what it is to be African-American because I don't know that experience. I, ha I wouldn't attempt to go, oh, yeah, this is what they feel because people don't see me like that, right? And I think that's where I'm always trying to... to justify that I am Filipino guys. I do eat pancit. I, I, you know, and it got to a point now where I was just like, I don't even care anymore. I am who I am and I'm not Filipino and I'm not white. I'm both. That's how I see myself. And in basketball, I felt the same way. It's like, you know what? I'm just going to be me. And of course I, you know, in basketball, it's different in, in all sports because it's how many points are you scoring? How many rebounds are you getting? What can you give to the team? And that contribution justifies kind of your worth to the team it has its goods and its bads but you become a commodity you become a commodity yeah and <laughs> you need that in sports obviously but at the same time it like what it does psychologically to a, to a, to a kid man i'm nothing because i can't score i don't play yeah but go down now go with your ethnicity and go with your community right am yeah. i really do i really belong to this community do they really accept me 
Yeah. You know? What did, was the name like Tony De La Cruz? What did people think you were off the bat? Oh, Mexican. Like, Mexican. I mean, there's, you know, so many uh, Mexican Americans in Carson and immediately they're like, oh, he's Mexican. Yeah. You know, I had a shaved head and everything. And, and for me, it's like, I didn't always go, no, 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 I'm Filipino guys. It's just, I think at, at a certain point people just said, oh, there's the white kid that plays basketball. For there's Carson. a white Mexican yeah. kid. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. But again, it's just always trying to justify who you were and you belonged. Yeah. And then where did you get your height genetically? Who knows? Like my, my dad was five, five and my mom is five, four and my sister, my older sister's six feet. I'm six, four. And then my younger sister's five, eight. You're an anomaly. Anom- I'm telling you that. Have you done flight. like a DNA test? I'm like <laughs> dying to know. <laughs> no, but my mom, my mom has uh, cousins that are all like six, 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 five. So. Wow. But yeah, I mean, I have, I guess my cousins on my dad's side aren't very tall. So yeah. Yeah. yeah this is, I guess lots of milk and lots of sleep. I don't know. <laughs> amazing. Amazing. Okay. So you are coming of age during high school. How much of the Filipino culture was existing in your home, you know, with, with your dad being Filipino and I'm assuming most of his family was in the Philippines. Maybe some of them came, but how much were you exposed to this Filipino culture at home? Um, I just knew that like I was, I had two different parents. Cause when I was like, I remember six, seven years old, I would go play at other kids house and I would always notice that, wow, both your parents are black or wow, both your parents are Mexican or both your parents. Like, I got a very diverse group of friends And I always noticed that their parents looked the same and my parents were always different. Right. And I knew that early on, like my parents are not like everyone else's parents. And I never met anyone who was like me. And when I, when the kids that moved into the neighborhood finally were half Filipino, like my sister went wild. She goes, Oh, there's other kids like us. And I'm like, what does that mean? You know? Um, Yeah. My older sister, she was always like on the lookout for other, Filipinos, oh, especially half Filipinos, because she wanted, it was like that in search of who else is like us. But when my aunt, my dad's older sister moved here in 1986, I mean, we were at her house all the time. She was cooking all the time. I finally started to hear Tagalog regularly because my dad, he would never speak it to us. And my mom would always be upset. My mom would be like, speak to them in Tagalog because they're going to, they have to learn. He's like, ah, and so she'd be like, you're going to regret this because they're going to need to know. And so when my aunt arrived, that's when we were being exposed. I was like nine or 10 at the time when she, she arrived. And so from there I was like, this is awesome. Like we're always, I mean, me and my cousin, um, she just arrived. She was like 12 or 13 when she arrived and like, we were best friends and we would oh, we'd do everything together. And she, lo- she would tell me about how it was in the Philippines, how much she loved it here. And like this, the food, the, the, the language, yeah. that's where I got real exposure to what it is in, in a Filipino household. And then Tagalog, you were, you heard it, but you, if you were to kind of judge how well you speak Tagalog, how would you, is it like kindergarten level? Like I speak Farsi, I, sorry, I speak Farsi, but I read Farsi at like a first grade level. It's like yeah. slow. And I'm like trying to figure it out. I, I can, I can before. I was, I knew a couple of words, but since living in the Philippines, like I've obviously learned a lot. And then me and my wife try to have Tagalog time, which is, I just try to stumble through it and she gets frustrated with me and she's like, never mind, I'll just speak English. You know, it's funny, me and James' young husband were talking about this, growing or living in the Philippines. And I'm not making an excuse other than the fact that people will go, you've been living in the Philippines for 20 years and you don't know how to speak Tagalog. It's like, cause everyone speaks English. 
I Would went you to agree J- with that? I agree. <laughs> I went to Japan for, for a tournament for 10 days and I felt like I was fluent in Japanese, which I wasn't. But if you don't speak in kindergarten language and, you know, baby talk, you're not going to eat. In the Philippines, everyone is yes. catering so to you. In the Philippines, it's like, I'll try to order and I'll be like, Miss, uh, and she's like, you want a drink? Like, I speak English. Like, oh, okay. It's easier. Yeah. I think in, in other countries, like, you know, if you go to France, you go to Japan, you go to Mexico, it's like, you better learn the language or else you're not going to eat, you know, you're not going to survive. And that's where you learn is through failure. Yeah. And I think Filipinos are so like accommodating and everyone knows English and at least some at some level. And so it's like, oh, this is just easier. Yeah. So I, and, and that's, it's, it's bad, but it's also good because it, it affects you in trying to learn language. Again, I'm making an excuse and I need to like be better, but my language skills in Tagalog now are a lot better than what it was 20 years ago. Yeah. So my mom, who's Iranian, lived in the Philippines for 12 years and she speaks Tagalog really well. And, you know, it's because she was the one like doing the shopping. And, and I think maybe at the time, this would have been in the 80s, you did have a population who spoke English, but maybe not sort of your everyday. So she was forced in a different way to speak Tagalog. And I wonder now, because I just saw a YouTube video where they stop people on the streets of Manila, young kids, and ask them to answer a question in Tagalog. And nobody, in 100% Tagalog, not one person could do it. These are young, you know, Mm -hmm. Filipinos. They could not put a whole sentence together in 100% Tagalog. So I think it's just shifting anyway in this direction, which is really, really sad. I mean, maybe if you lived you know, on an island, mm-hmm. you would definitely For be sure, fluent. Yeah. <laughs> For um, sure. Okay. So one thing I remember growing up in the Philippines is that because I was slightly different looking, there was always, and you know, a little bit of like, you know, Persian features, whatever. Like I was always like getting touched and I was always like, Oh, look at this. And I have an American, a white American friend who went to the Philippines and the people would go up to him and say, Oh my gosh, like your skin is so white and your arms are so hairy and your nose is so big. And he's like, those are literally the three things I hate about myself, you know? And like (laughs) he was just being like fawned over. So how was that experience for you? You had, you gone to the Philippines at all before that one trip before you started playing at UC Irvine? Um, Yes. I, I went in 1995, my going into my junior year, in high school for a tournament. That um, was your first time? That was my first time. Okay. And I met all my relatives and and I didn't feel like, oh, wow, we love your skin. It was just like, you're our relative and we love you. So that was within your family? That was within my family. The th- <laughs> and I'm not going to lie about this. The thing where I felt like I was like highly like, wow, was here in Southern California with like my group of friends. They were like, you're so cute because you're half. Oh. That's how I felt like. And like my friends who were fooled would be like, man, I hate you, man. It's so easy for you. I go, what are you talking about? And I was a shy kid. So, but they're like, dude, your hair looks different from us. You're, you're, you're taller. You, you have this cool kind of tan, like when the sun comes out. And so like, I would like, I do, huh? I like different. <laughs> and you know, I talked to a couple of my friends that are girls and then they'd be like, oh, Tony, like you're the thing, man. Like you're half, you're like this like <laughs> exotic person. And so, but I never looked at it like, yeah, I'm going to get all these girls. It was more like, well, that's kind of cool. And I didn't want to always lead into that when I've ever met anybody like, hi, I'm Tony. I'm half Filipino. Like it comes up, it comes up. And I think in terms of just being like, oh, I like your skin. I like your hair. I like this. I didn't really see that in the Philippines, even in my experience now. But 
you do see commercials where like people are spending all kinds of money for for lightning cream um you know um different kind of like nose jobs and you know eye jobs or whatever they're doing because they want to look more european or whatever it is and for me like i don't want to judge anybody it is what it is um i'm at this place and i and i try to tell this to my kids is you have to just be happy with who you are and you have to accept who you are and you have to accept who that person is now is it an issue if you're like working out all the time because you want to lose weight? Yeah, that, there's issues like that, you know? I mean, I got into, I fell into that trap where it's like, I have to look this way. I have to be accepted in this way. But I've come to a point in my age where it's like, I just need to be healthy. Yeah. And, you know, I still have my insecurities about like my looks. You know, I have my insecurities about like, I think my nose looks a certain way or my, my, my jawline is a certain way or my teeth are a certain way and I need to fix this, fix that. But at the end of the day, like I, I, I do come to realize that we are who we are and you know, you have to accept who we are and how can you love other people if you don't love yourself first? Mm -hmm. And I know I'm trying to get all without getting super deep, but that's what it comes down to is self-love because we're, we're socialized to hate ourselves in certain aspects, right? I can only imagine what it feels like for a young Filipino kid watching commercials about, well, my skin doesn't look like that. I need to buy this cream. So I, I look like that. That's where like, what does that do to a young kid, right? And then how will that young kid grow up to be an adult who thinks the same way? And then they're going to pass that on to their children, right? Yeah. Like you're not, you're not good enough unless you look this way. Yeah. That's what I want to change. That's what I want to address. To tap into everyone's intrinsic motivation. I know you talk a lot about confidence. I've, I've heard you talk a lot about confidence. And I think how, how does one connect to that part of another person and then help them blossom in that way. I, I've been recently following this. He was, he has a TED talk. His name is Peter Sage. And, you know, you hear a lot of TED talks and and you learn from a lot of them. This guy is, speaks in a way that I, that's really connecting to me right now. And he says, never underestimate how insignificant like 90% of everything is. You know, that we worry about all these things and it's, it's so powerful. So how did you, first of all, cause, and you can't teach it unless you believe it, right? And that's the other, that's really thing that's really par powerful about coaching is that unless you have been through that, whatever that is, how can you, you know, authentically teach it? So tell me about your own journey to that confidence in the context of like trying to find who you are, being half Filipino, half white across two different continents, you know, and that's even kind of more jarring, you know, it's like, yeah. where do I really belong? And then having to find that within yourself and now teach it to others. The biggest thing was when I got to UC Irvine, there was a club here or there's a club here called Kababayan and they were very accepting and I met some great people there and it was a way for me to explore my Filipino culture. These were young Filipino Americans who were just there to not only socialize, but do community activities, educate. And a part of me wanted to join just to prove that I was Filipino, but love the people as well in the, in the club, in the, in the social club. So that was one step for me to like learn more about my culture. The other side of it is I also learned how to talk to other people. And it had nothing to do with, well, I need to go talk to the white people because I'm half white. It had everything to do with, I just want to talk to different people because I want to get to know them. Like my wife will attest to this. If you're an accountant, if you're a basketball coach, if you're a helicopter pilot, like if I meet you, I'm going to be like, what's the greatest thing about your job? Like I'm very interested and curious about people. And 
I think with that curiosity comes this like understanding of like, man, this person's struggling just like me, or this person is killing the game. How can I get like her or him? Uh, I think just being curious is the biggest factor for me. I'm just curious in meeting people. And even if it's something that I don't agree with, I'm curious. Why is it that you believe that? Where are you coming from? What, what experience did you have? And then when I kind of have an understanding of, oh, this is why she does this. This is why he does this. This is why he talks to me like this. I understand now. So if I know where you're coming from, maybe we can meet halfway. And and even if you know where someone's coming from, it's really just part of the way. Like you will, you will never act, like you said earlier, you'll never know. And so it's, it's step in the right direction, but it's never that you'll actually truly know. Yeah. Like I'll never know what it is to be you, right? Like you going through your day, looking the way you look, people will interact with you that way. And I'll never understand that no matter what you say to me, I can try my best. And again, I go back to my wife who teaches me a lot about, can't you just hear my side of it? Can't you just hear my side of it? And so <laughs> I always have to stop and go, you're right. And then I go, can't you hear my side of it? You know, so, but it is what it is in any relationship, whether it is a marriage, um, a friendship, a basketball team, like there has to be some understanding of where people are coming from. I'll never fully understand what you're going through, but I'll do my best to try. And then just be more empathetic and, and sympathetic to, to, to different people. And I think with that comes this, when you have understanding, I think that's where you get confidence. And then the other thing that I've learned with all the mental health issues that I've been through in my life is you don't have control. Like you do not have control. Like, and that's where you stress out when you want, we want it to be sunny because it's cold and the clouds are out. You're going to sit here and stress for however long, right? And if you can just accept that this is how it is right now, yeah. You can enjoy it more. So that's the other side of it. And I think with confidence is knowing that it's the most liberating things to know you don't have control. Yeah. We'll return to our show and hear more from our guest in just a moment. Because I, I learned the hard way. It took me a year of just frustration and going home and crying and reflecting am I really a good basketball player do I really deserve to play this this show is brought to you by podcast network Asia powered by Podmetrics. Podmetrics takes care of the details so we can focus on making the best content for you visit podmetrics.co and sign up for free use code partially Pinoy Something that we as mixed race people live with every day is tension, I believe. Tension between cultures, yep. tension between languages and all these other things. It's just inherently part of you <laughs> and identity. And something that struck me about your story recently is I know that you have gone through some really hard times recently, including, you know, your father passing away. And I know your now wife had to go through cancer treatment and so many things I don't know about. When I hear those kinds of stories, I think of how the way that we are designed, you know, in, in almost a divine way is that the opposites always have to exist, have yep. to coexist, you know, like the happiness with the sad, like at the same time, and I think we're so tuned into that as mixed race kids. And so what have these experiences sort of taught you about 
exactly what you said, that things just are what they are. And we have to learn how to live with all these competing opposites all the time. And it can never be this way, just one way. Like, I'm only going to be smooth sailing, happy. Tell me about sort of Um, that journey. So... So I don't sound like pretentious. <laughs> if you live in the Philippines, part of that culture is you have help. And I had this driver in the Philippines who was like my bodyguard slash psychologist slash everything, de facto uncle, kuya, everything. And we were in traffic one day and I said to him, and he was my driver for like 13 years. Like, I love this guy. And I said to him one day, I just wish I could pay all my bills off. We're in traffic. And you know, there'd be no traffic. And, you know, I never had to worry about bills again. And he turns to me and he says, then life would be boring. And it made so much sense in that moment when he said that, because it's true. Like that's a story of the Buddha, right? Like he was this prince who got anything he wanted and he realized like, this is boring. Like this is not good. Be too comfortable. It'd be too comfortable. Like you have to experience hardship in order to appreciate the good times. And of course, some hardships are worse than others. I'm not going to lie about that, but do I wish my my partner didn't have cancer? Absolutely, 100%. Do I wish cancer never existed? 100%. But it is here and we have to deal with it, right? My uncle and my aunt recently just passed away of COVID. In the Philippines? In the Philippines. And Sorry to hear that. That happening, I had no control over that. Am I sad? Yes, 100%. Does it tear me apart? 100%. But when my dad passes the same thing, like I realize, like this is part of life and we have to deal with it. I think that's the biggest thing right there is, is if you can just, you don't have control, you have to deal with the moment. And it was such a cool thing when my dad was passing away, not that he was passing away was cool, but I got to see him and say goodbye. And the thing I noticed the most was my mom was there holding his hand. And what I thought to myself was, this is what's important in life, relationships. The most important, like I, Steve Jobs had a billion dollars and he, he couldn't extend his life further than what he did, right? Not even for one minute. Not even for oh, one yeah, minute. Yeah, yeah. He had a, over a billion dollars. Yeah. Was he happier with a billion? I'm sure he was. He lived comfortably. But in that moment when my dad was passing away, I saw like, this is what's important. He built this life of relationships. I think that's the biggest thing I'm learning is you have to build relationships with people and you have to, it's like a garden. You have to cultivate that relationship, right? And if you don't cultivate that relationship, the flowers are going to die. The grass is going to die. The weeds are going to grow. And so it's an effort. And I saw the effort that my dad put into his relationships with his people. And all of a sudden I'm sitting there and like, we're in this room filled with my family crying. And I'm thinking, I had this weird moment where I'm just, I kind of stepped outside of my body and I was like, what is happening right now? Like, why are we all crying like this? Because he had an impact on our life. So that's why I think that's where that comes with, with going back to that being biracial, multiracial, you're exposed to different sides. And then you're also exposed to there was a relationship or there is a relationship with two different cultures or three different cultures that had to come together and have to understand each other. So I think that's the biggest thing is just building relationships, getting a better understanding. And that's like divine law. You know, at the end of the day, that's all that mattered is that relationship. The last thing I want to ask you, and I, I know I could ask you a hundred more questions and I have a hundred <laughs> more questions. I can talk for yeah, hundred more years. <laughs> I'm going to ask you a basketball question that I was curious about. So you uh, were trained at UCI division one, mm-hmm. and then you 
felt that you'd go to the Philippines and kind of dominate. You were recruited by Shell as a direct recruit. What was sort of the first thing you noticed as far as like the difference in the training? Just at point blank, like the difference in that basketball training because you, you were yeah. elevated, right? And at, at Shell. I think the biggest learning in that moment was I was humbled. Like you said, I had, I'm not going to lie, I had this idea that, oh, I played Division One basketball. In America. In America. <laughs> I'm going to be Kobe Bryant when I get there. And I wasn't. And I, it, it was a life lesson that taught me humility because to this day, I understand that I don't know everything. I want to be confident in my abilities, but I don't know everything. So in any situation that I step into, I always think about that moment. Like, I'm not going to be like, oh, I'm going to come today and just dominate and everyone's going to love me. I'm going to come today with an open mind and a growth mindset so that I can learn. Because when I got to the Philippines, I was like, oh, wow, these guys can really play. And they play a different style. And then learning that style and adapting to that style and then trying to thrive in that style, that was the biggest thing. So that was the moment where I realized that humility is a great, great teacher. Because yeah. I, I learned the hard way. It took me a year of just frustration and going home and crying and reflecting. Am I really a good basketball player? Do I really deserve to play this? Like I'm not having fun anymore. This is, I, you know, I'm always, I, I noticed I would always start conversations with like, Oh, I played like 10 minutes yesterday, but the coach was, I was making all these excuses in my head about <laughs> why I'm not playing and why I'm not earning and why I'm not scoring. And it made me realize that let my work speak for itself. And so you know, and it was through divine intervention. I met some cool people that, that changed my life and that guided me and showed me a different way to play and learn and grow. And all these people had an impact on my life and in my, my career. So that was the biggest learning from coming from America to the, to the Philippines was I don't know everything. And I got taught real fast that I don't know everything and I still don't know everything, right? Like I want to be a better coach. How can I be a better coach? Obviously, like if we could win a million championships for my club, that'd be great. But there's always something else to learn. You have, I'll tell you something you have in common with Kobe Bryant. You mentioned Kobe Bryant. We are actually one day apart in our birthdays. <gasps> when is his birthday? August 23rd, 1978. I'm August 24, 1978. Oh and gosh. the city of Los Angeles has made <laughs> August 24th. Kobe Bryant Day, which is on my birthday. So wow. we celebrate Kobe Bryant Day oh on my, my birthday. Okay. And my birthday is February 24, which is 224, which is very significant in Kobe Bryant land. And we, when we purchased our car, the license plate had 224 in it. Nice. And it was just like, this was meant to be. And my husband's, of course, huge Lakers fan. My husband got to watch Kobe play when he scored 61 points wow. at Madison Square Garden. Because then that was like yeah. the first legendary. And he even he was like fifth row, got to high five him and stuff. Wow. And he said that he was sitting, he got there early, very excited. And everyone comes out from the Lakers. All the other men, they were like talking, chatting, high-fiving each other. They were just sort of like hanging out, not Kobe. He walked out. The first thing he did was grab balls and just shoot and shoot and shoot. And he said, I just knew, I knew in the moment why he was Kobe Bryant. Like even among the elite of the elite, he stood apart. Mm -hmm. And I feel like you have that ethic, right? Like that's something that you believe in deeply is all those extra hours and extra time. And was that inspired by, I, I know you also were exposed to a lot of different players through videos and everything else like growing up, but where did that come from of like, I'm going to shoot 500. That, that for sure came from my dad. 
I mean, my mom was always there to support me, but my dad, I remember I, I tried out for my seventh grade team and I didn't make it. I, he, my dad supported me. We went to Byron Scott basketball camp and I was so ready. Seventh grade. Seventh grade. And the, the time came to try out for the, the team and I went to the tryout and I just didn't do well. And I was so hurt. And when I was walking to the car, my dad was so excited. He, you know, he was like, oh, I can't wait till these games. And so when I got into the car, he's like, oh, so what happened? Uh, how'd it go? What number are you going to be? What position are you going to play? When's your first game? Those three questions right off the bat. And I just broke down crying. I was like, I didn't make it. <laughs> and in that moment, my dad said the greatest thing he could have said to a, to a 12-year-old or 13-year-old or however I was. He said, so what? You didn't make it. What are you going to do so you na- make it next time? And at first I was like, go, no, go talk to the coach. Go get him fired. Like do something. <laughs> something is wrong with him. Something's wrong with him, not me. And my dad was like, no, this is, ha- this is life. This is what happens. You have to adjust now. I, I, I can't even tell you like the amount of work I've put into shooting. And I met this coach in the Philippines who said that you have to put this work in. And I, I you know, when they say there's that 10,000 hour rule, like, I think I've spent a hundred thousand hours working on my jump shot. Right. And I don't want to toot my own horn, but every time I meet these young players, I go, I know for a fact I can outshoot you from the mid range. You might shoot better than me from the three, but like, I believe in my mind and my heart because I've put so much time in that I'm the greatest mid range shooter of all time in my heart, in my mind. I'll tell friends, I'll be like, we can bet right now, you know? And like, and I don't want to get into this, like, you know, who's taller, who's bigger, who's whatever. I'm so confident the the amount of work that I put in. Now I haven't done it now in a while, and I see these young kids now. And the 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 Steph Curry is probably the greatest shooter in the world, in the universe, right in now. in the history of basketball. I think he's he's amazing. I'm not a Warriors fan. I'm a Laker fan, but I recognize that this guy is amazing. The worst thing that he does for the game is these little kids think that they can be like him without putting in the work. And I always tell these kids when I coach them, you know how much time Steph Curry has put into his shooting? Like, I can't even, you, we won't even fathom like the amount of hours he has put into this craft. Kobe Bryant, same thing, right? We don't understand that. Like, and so when these kids start pulling these jump shots from like near to half court and they're like, Steph Curry, Kobe Bryant, I, I always go, do you understand that you have to shoot closer first and you have to put in the hours? And so... I, I always use that example with Steph Curry because he makes it look so easy. In fact, I'm sure he was inspired by Kobe to work just as hard, right? All of these guys. And that's what it takes. The amount of hours you put into this, to your craft. When no one's watching as well. When no one's watching. To be flawless. To like be, this is what it takes to be flawless. To be flawless. And so that's where I, my biggest lesson to the kids is if you want to get great, you have to put in the time. I I say this to the young kids. I go, do you want white teeth? They're like, yeah. I go, so you can't just brush on Tuesday. (laughs) You got to brush three times a day, two times, whatever it is. Every day you have to floss. You have to do all the little things to make sure your teeth are white. Right. And they're like, oh, I go, cause you can't go mom. My, yeah, I brush my teeth on Monday. I'm good till next Monday. You can't go to your coach and be like, oh, I shot today. I'll shoot next week. It's a daily grind. It's a daily practice that you have to love. And that's when I say that's the worst thing that Steph Curry's doing for these kids is they don't see the time and effort he has put in and is putting in to be what he is, which is amazing. I think that's what it comes down to is, is you got to put in, you have to have the passion to do it. Cause if you're just in the gym for five hours and you hate it, like don't do it, forget it, forget it. 
That is another divine law that I'm learning slowly is that almost anything in life that is worth having or that you feel is great or worth achieving requires the daily, sustained, constant commitment, bite-sized, right? It's such a hard lesson to learn. If it, like, and <laughs> I'm learning this the hard way as a 40-plus-year-old retired basketball player. I don't look like I looked when I was 25 in terms of how fit I was. But I don't want to put in the work. Like, why am I running these miles? Why am I on this bike? Why am I, do you know? And I tell that all the time. If you, like, imagine if you had the physique you wanted, right? And you could eat anything you wanted. You can stay out as late as you want, drink as much as you want, but you would never change. Your physique would always look good. You wouldn't appreciate it. You don't appreciate it until it's gone. And I have a friend who, who's paralyzed and he's like, you know, what, you know what I'd give to brush my own teeth? You know what I'd give to tie my own shoe? To poop regular again? To pee regular again? You don't realize what you have until it's gone. And so now that I'm retired, I'm not putting in the work to be fit. <laughs> yet. <laughs> and so, yet. Yet. Yeah. And so my wife says it all the time. Don't complain. Like I look in the mirror. I'm like, my belly's getting bigger. She goes, don't complain if you're going to sit there and, you know, drink a beer and then not go run. You have to put in the time. Daily. Daily. It is a practice. Yeah. And then I also love this idea that, you know, one, you know, one trip to the gym is not going to make you fit. Yeah. One burger is not going to make you unfit. What does make you fit and unfit is the sustained, you know, their consumption. Consistency, absolutely. And it's excellence, right? And that's what Kobe Bryant was. He was excellent, right? He was yeah. excellent in everything he did. Yeah. I could talk about this forever. Yeah. So curious. You were you're six four. Your dad is five five. At what point did it start becoming like, you know, you you your parents are just your parents. In my case, like my dad's my dad, my mom's my mom. I wasn't necessarily thinking of height, but in your case, it was sort of a very obvious difference. Was that something that was ever talked about in your family? Oh, all the or, time. Okay. <laughs> all the time. It was like, and my dad was so proud of us because we're so tall. And he's like, come here. And they're like, wow, your kids this are so tall. Yeah, yeah, this is my son. <laughs> but I think it was, I could see that there was a real issue because he was always buying me new shoes because my shoes weren't fitting. I was growing so fast. Like, I mean, I went, went from a, like a size nine one time. And then the next time we bought shoes, I was size 11. Like, cause my, my feet weren't fitting. And I, you know, I wasn't the big seven foot kid that was growing in the countryside. Like, oh, he's this, you know, giant, but it was definitely like it was significant in that sense that I was growing fast and I was getting taller and I was different from them. You when, know? when did you stop growing tall? Do you remember? Um, I stopped growing tall, I guess maybe when I was 20, 21, okay. but I'm now I'm just growing, I'm growing w wider now. And that's how I knew I was ready to retire from basketball. I was like 38 and we're doing this cone drill and I'm thinking I'm 38 years old and I'm jumping over cones. Can we just play <laughs> basketball? And that's how I knew I was done with the sport. I was like, I need to retire. That's a good sign. <laughs> uh, something else I learned recently from Peter Sage is that you are the star of the movie of your life. Okay. And the way we know you're the star of the movie of your life is because you are in every scene of the movie of your life. Okay. Everybody else, like I'm an extra, 
James may be a supporting actor. We just talked about this. Oh my gosh, your wife definitely supporting actor, but at best she's supporting. It doesn't. It doesn't matter. Like how close she my husband. She has her own movie. She has her own movie. Yet we live life as if we are the stars of everybody's movie, and somehow care what all the extras think. We care what all the even like even our spouses like they're living their own lives or own whatever. Okay, so I now I got to hear what the conversation was that you guys are having. But then also, when you think of like long term, your own life, and you know, as you want to gain excellence within your own life movie, like what does that look like for you? What do you? And I don't mean just with sports, and you can include sports, but just sort of this larger aspect of you. Yeah. So first, tell me about the conversation, and then. So we were both hungover (laughs) the other day, and we went to go meet uh, a, a former player of my wife. And we were making this appointment to meet her for coffee in like Cafe Dolce, I think was the place in downtown Los Angeles. And so we drive there and I'm like, we got to make this effort to go see this, this person. And so me and James, like zombies get to this coffee shop. We were sipping coffee and we're sitting in these chairs outdoors. I'm like, my eyes are open and I'm watching all these different people walk by in like this calculated moment, like... And I was, you know, we people watch and I yeah. go, I wonder, where that, doing <laughs> I wonder where this woman's going or I wonder what the story with these two kids or the wonder what the story. And all of a sudden I asked James, I go, Hey man, do you ever think about like, what if this is a movie and all these people around us are extras? But, and I said the exact same thing. I said, but you're, you're a supporting actor in my movie and I'm a supporting actor in your movie. And he goes, and you know, of course I'm trying to ask this like deep question, and he just turns to me and he goes, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but I, I was literally thinking at that time that I see people walking around and we've got, we've got massive headaches. I'm like, I want to be where they're at, where they've got, they got no headaches and stuff. <laughs> I say, you're like, I want to be where they are now. It's like, like just give it time to recover. <laughs> yeah. But it, but it is, it, 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 I see what you're saying. Like, it is true. It's mm-hmm. like, but the, the thing I'll add to that is, yes, I'm a supporting actor in your life right now. Yeah. And that. These, these kids playing in this park are, are extras, but everyone has an impact in someone's life. And although I'm not the main actor in everyone else's movie, I have an impact in some way or form in your life. And it's whether or not you allow me to have that impact, right? So it's one thing to receive a copy, learn this. It's one thing to receive a compliment and be like, wow, you're so amazing. But I didn't need you to tell me that. Like I already knew that yeah. because it's the same power if I go, you're such a jerk. You're the worst human being. No, you don't know me. Now there's obviously criticism and like, maybe I need to stop back and am I really a jerk? Am I really, but the audience going to, you're going to ask yourself, does the audience like me? Yeah. <laughs> Are they rooting for me? Do they, they, am I the hero or the villain? <laughs> exactly. So I think we have an impact in everyone's life, but that's great. You, uh, you said it like we're not the main actor in everyone's movie. So we need to get over ourselves. <laughs> Partially Pinoy is a Podcast Network Asia production in partnership with Bridger Media in Los Angeles. Our show is developed and executive produced by Leila Jerusalem. The series is produced by Nikai Lucanias.
The views and opinions expressed by the podcast creators, hosts, and guests do not necessarily reflect the official policy and position of Podcast Network Asia. Any content provided by the people on the podcast are of their own opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything.